I'd like for us to turn to Hebrews 9 this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, um, and discuss one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews. And that major theme is change. One of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is change. Uh, and, and similar to all humans throughout all of history, the Hebrews did not like change. And Paul came preaching change. He said, Hebrew, Hebrew church, Jews, children of Israel, all phrases that he uses throughout the book of Hebrews, things have changed. And guess what? For the Hebrew church, things had changed for the better. But they struggled to understand that. And so Paul spends the entirety of the book of Hebrews talking to them about the things that have changed and how they're going to understand change going forward. Reading from Hebrews 9 and verse 24, Paul says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This was a big change for the Hebrews. A big change, because Paul has suddenly shifted the entire paradigm of worship. He has, he has preached the gospel to the Hebrews, and he's told them the way that you experience contact with God has suddenly changed. That's what Jesus Christ came heralding. He said, your relationship with God, the way that you understand the relationship that you have with God that has existed before the foundation of the world, it's fundamentally changed. Now, and Paul says, Christ is not interacting with you in the same way that you've interacted with God in the past. The, Hebrew, the Hebrews would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. Let's read from Leviticus chapter 16 to make sure we understand. Now, the pattern of worship that the Israelites participated in for about a thousand years. We think the Israelites fled from Egypt around the 13th century uh, BC. So for about a thousand years, they're worshiping in the same way. And their pattern of worship under the Mosaic law, it centered around one day in the year. Think about that. One day in the year. And it was the day that the priest cleansed himself and prepared the day of atonement. That's what we're reading about in Leviticus 16. We read in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. We won't talk about that this morning. It's another story for another day. Uh, and the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock or young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So the temple structured at that, that time 
was set in terraces or partitions, to use an Old Testament word. So you had the outer court of the temple, you had an inner sanctum, and then inside of that inner sanctum, you had what was called the holiest of all. It's how Paul phrases that in the book of Hebrews. That was the part of the tabernacle and later part of the temple that the Ark of the Covenant was set within. And the Lord said, this is where my presence will be. I'm going to come down. I'm going to settle in that holiest of holies. And my presence is going to settle upon the top of that Ark, the mercy seat. And he says, once a year, Aaron and the descendants of Aaron would come in before the very presence of God to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the children of Israel. You know, this would be as if we only came together to worship once a year. You know, I was at a church several months ago and I made a similar comment. And there was a little guy in the back sitting with his mom and he said, Mom, if we only had to go to church once a year, that would be fantastic. <laughs> and you know, in, in the way that all small children talk, it's a whisper to them, but it's loud enough for the entire church to hear. So the rest of that service was me fighting for control of the congregation while everybody laughed about this, this joke that the little guy made in the back. But it would be as if we only assembled for church once a year. The Lord says the primary contact that you're going to have with me is going to come once a year, and it's going to come through the mediation of Aaron. Now, then Jesus comes, and he comes preaching the kingdom of God. And he comes preaching what he entitled as a different covenant, one that Paul entitles as a covenant of grace. And he says... That the law was but a shadow, a picture, a partial representation of what Jesus Christ would come to do. Aaron going into the holiest of holies and sprinkling blood upon the mercy seat, that was only a partial representation of what Jesus Christ would come to do. And Paul clarifies in verse 24 that we just read, Jesus Christ is not entering into the tabernacle made with hands. He's not entering into the holiest of holies as Aaron did to atone for the sins of God's people. Rather, he is entering into heaven itself to make intercession for God's people before the Father. He says what Aaron did was just a partial representation of what Christ is doing right now. Aaron went into the holiest of holies. He sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat. Christ goes back into heaven to intercess as your high priest before God. He says, and he didn't offer himself often, verse 25, as the high priest entered in the holy place every year with the blood of others. Remember, the Hebrews had observed this pattern of worship for a thousand years. Aaron and the descendants of Aaron for many, many years, year after year, time after time, they enter into the holy place to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat and atone for the sins of God's people. Paul says, no more. Because your true high priest, Jesus Christ, he goes once before God. He offers himself once. And he, in that one time, effectually atoned for the sins of God's people. He didn't have to go year after year. 
He didn't have to go time after time. He didn't have to cleanse himself and wash himself and prepare the sacrifices as Aaron did year after year. He entered in before God once and offered himself. That's the paradigm shift that Paul's trying to explain throughout the entire book of Hebrews. He says, Hebrew church, what you have done year after year is just a representation of what Jesus Christ would come to do. And Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God. As a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he does it once. He doesn't need to do it multiple times. He doesn't need to offer himself up year after year. He goes in once. And he says, For if he entered into to the holiest of holies year after year, verse 26, he must have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He said, Jesus Christ came once to atone for the sins of God's people. And how did he do that? There's such rich doctrine here. The way that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of his people was he sacrificed himself. He was the sacrifice. There wasn't a bull. There wasn't a goat. Aaron wasn't involved. There wasn't a tabernacle involved. Jesus Christ comes and he offers himself. That's what atoned for the sins of God's people. He says, and as it is appointed men once to die, but after this the judgment. Paul is saying, to simplify this language perhaps, we die once. And then we experience the judgment. He says, Jesus Christ died once, and that was enough. He says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Here's Paul's message in a succinct manner. Times have changed. Now you understand that Jesus Christ offers himself once for the sins of many. And he's coming back. That's the thrust of the gospel right there. That's the paradigm shift that Paul's endorsing here. The pattern of worship that's changed. And he says in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 10, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. He said the law was never meant to make people perfect. You know, when Paul says this, when he delivers this message to the Hebrew church, this knocks them flat on their face. Because they had this, concept, they had this preconceived notion that what they were doing year after year in the temple somehow made them perfect. That it somehow purified their flesh. That it somehow saved them from sin. And Paul comes in with the message of the gospel. He says, the law was never meant to save you from sin. Rather, it reflected the God, the Savior, the sacrifice that would truly purge you. The law was never meant to save anybody. Paul says it was a reflection of what actually would. You know, and by inference, our conclusion is, well, 
If the law couldn't save anybody, if the, perfection, the, the continual completion of the principles of God's law couldn't save anybody, our work certainly can't. We can't adequately fulfill the law. And I assure you today, if there is any work on the face of the planet, if there is any group of people that could have ever satisfied God and God in all of his perfection, it would have been the children of Israel. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, it's chapter after chapter of, frankly, exhausting detail of all of the things that the children of Israel should have done, that God commanded them to do in order to satisfy his justice. And repeatedly, again and again, guess what? They didn't wash their hands that one time that they were supposed to go before God. They didn't wear the right garments. There was a blemish on one of their sacrifices. There was some little bitty aspect of the law that they refused to fulfill. By the way, there were several years that they weren't even able to worship at the temple because they were in captivity. And so they fall short of the fulfillment of God's law again and again and again. And Paul asked the question of the Hebrew church. If the sacrifices of God's law had been able to make someone perfect, would they have been needed to offer again, to be offered again and again and again? He asked this question in verse 2 of Hebrews 10. He says, For then would they, the sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. He says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And here's one of, one of the crucial moments in Paul's argument. He says in verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. It is not possible that the blood of, of bulls and goats should take away sin. Now, I promise you, we're building context to something that's crucially relevant to us this morning. But I want us to understand what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to initiate and instigate and explain change. Saying, here's what Jesus Christ came to do. He fulfilled the law. He is the guy. He is the man. He is the sacrifice. He is the Savior that the law spoke of for thousands of years. He is the final sacrifice that would effectually atone for the sins of God's people. He's the one that the law spoke of. And he says in verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he is Jesus Christ. He says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body that is prepared for me. Jesus Christ says this. He states this in prophecy. He said when he came into the world, I'm not concerned with sacrifice and offering." I'm not concerned with going before the, before the presence of God in the temple and offering bulls and goats for the redemption of sins. He says, my body is sufficient. My body is the sacrifice that my, I will make. My blood is the blood that will be shed for the redemption and atonement of sins. My blood is the blood that all the shed blood of the bulls of goats for a thousand years had spoken of. It's going to be my blood. 
He says, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Then said, I, lo, I come to do thy will. O God. Wow, I love this. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the will of God. What was the will of God imposed upon Jesus Christ? The will of God instructed Jesus Christ that he ought to die. We can read that throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And guess what? Jesus Christ in all perfection, in all harmony, acts in accord with the command of the will of God. And he dies upon the cross. If there is any aspect of Jesus' life which ought to instruct us how to live, it ought to be that. Jesus Christ, he views the cross. And guess what? Jesus Christ understood that the cross would be painful. He understood that the cross would hurt his flesh. He understood that the cross would be a painful experience. He could do that and not sin. We read throughout, the, especially the Gospels, that Jesus cries out to God on multiple occasions, anticipating the agony of the cross. And what does he do? We're told that in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, that he despised the shame. He subjected himself to the will of God in all perfection, and he fulfilled the commands of God's will. There will be many times that we are instructed to do things in the will of God, the precepts of God's word that are painful. Here's how we ought to deal with that. We ought to do as Jesus did. We should despise the pain. We should set those concerns to the side and fulfill the law of God anyway. See, that's how Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of God's people. He understood the agony of the cross. He understood what it would entail. And he fulfilled God's commands anyway. You know, we're, we're instructed how to live in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 when we're told, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight... And the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross was an excruciating experience for Jesus Christ. It was painful to his flesh, and his spirit experienced agony as God unleashed his wrath upon Jesus Christ. But guess what he did? He despised the shame of that experience, and he fulfills the law and the will of God anyway. That is a mentality, that is a perspective that ought to permeate the way that we live our lives. Because in a secular or fleshly sense, there are many things that God commands us to do that are often painful. But the perspective of Jesus Christ remains the same. He sets the pain aside and he fulfills the will of God. And in doing so, what does he accomplish? He atones for the sins of many. The greatest act ever completed in human history. He atones for the sins of many. 
a multitude that, uh, that is of a number that we cannot conceive. He atones for the sins of all of those people by fulfilling the law of God, by fulfilling the will of God in perfection. He says in verse 10, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul's just restating the same thing over and over and over again in case the Hebrews miss it. He says, in case you missed it, over the last four times that I've said it, in the last six verses, I want to remind you again. The way that you are saved is the body, the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And he said that sacrifice was made once for all. It didn't have to be made twice It didn't have to be made the next year and the next year and the next year again and again and again. Jesus Christ states through Paul, I offered myself once for all. He says, and every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, this man, Jesus Christ, In case we missed it, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, in case we missed it, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I love the way that Paul teaches Line upon line, precept upon precept, realizing that human beings are stubborn. They don't listen the first time. And sometimes you have to repeat the same thing over and over and over again to get them to understand. Paul wastes no time here. He says, Jesus Christ, by one offering, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In this new age, this time of change that Jesus Christ came heralding, when he came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says there's no place for the repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats. Year after year, time after time, generation after generation. Because Jesus Christ, by one offering, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He says, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he has said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He says, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Paul is speaking of the prophecy of Jeremiah in these verses. And here's what Jeremiah said. He said, Jeremiah said, there is going to come a time where there is going to be a big change. Where the law is not delivered to people from tablets of stone. It's not delivered to people through their contact with the tabernacle. He says, no, the way that I'm going to teach people my law is I'm going to write my law upon people's hearts. He's been doing this since the first child of God was born again. I don't know when that was. God knows. When the Spirit moves within God's children, 
and borns them again and saves them here in this world, he writes his law within their hearts. Paul says, lest we ever doubt that this time of change has come to pass, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, let us observe that his law is written within children of God's hearts. He said, this is the ultimate proof that we have that the law has been fulfilled, that the time of the tabernacle is past, and we are now under a covenant of grace and a new method of worship. Let's turn there and read the prophecy in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. You know, in Jeremiah, he's an Old Testament prophet. He's prophesying in the midst of a time when the, law, when the tabernacle still would have been functioning, when the temple would have been in existence, and people are still offering the sacrifices that Paul is speaking of in Hebrews. By the way, Jeremiah was persecuted for this message as well. Because he said, what we're doing is not effectual to the, for the atonement of sin. He said, what we're doing is not atoning for sin. It is only a representation of what actually atones for sin. And the implications of what Jeremiah was saying were so severe that he's persecuted throughout his entire ministry. He's persecuted throughout his entire ministry, and he doesn't have a lot of people that listen to him over the course of his lifetime. And he says in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Paul says, Jeremiah says, and Paul also echoes the words of Jeremiah, saying, I'm not going to teach people who I am through the law anymore. The way that I'm going to teach them, the contact that they're going to have with me, is when I write my law in their hearts. Let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 to continue to affirm this. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. He says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. God says, in this, the age that Jesus Christ comes proclaiming, the primary way, the way that people are going to have contact with me, the way that people will experience fellowship with me, is when I write my law in their hearts. I'll go ahead and tell you, an extension of that is Jesus Christ also came proclaiming the kingdom of God. You have the explicit information 
that we have about Jesus Christ and his kingdom derives from the gospel, derives from the word of God. And guess what? That is a message of grace. That's a message that's distinct from the message of the law. It's a message that's different. It's a message that shifts the vocal point of how we worship from the sacrifices that were made in the law to grace. To grace. Jesus says, the way that you're going to understand me, the way that you're going to experience fellowship with me, the way that you're going to have contact with my spirit is not by one man going into the holiest of holies. Everyone's going to know me. Because I'm going to write my law in their hearts. Now we understand that that's not speaking of everyone without exception. That's speaking of everyone, the many, for whom Christ died. Those people are going to have God's law at some point within, between conception and death. The law of God is written in their hearts. I don't know when that time is. I couldn't tell you when by faith. I believed it happened for me. I can't tell you when by faith it's happened for any of you all. I just know that Jesus Christ has promised on the authority of who he is as God. That at some point between our conception and our death, the Lord writes his law upon our hearts. And guess what? That law instructs and teaches, it convicts and admonishes, it chastens. It gives us the capacity to understand the gospel. It gives us the capacity to understand spiritual things. It gives us the capacity to rejoice in the truth of God's grace. It gives us the capacity to understand worship as something more than what we do arbitrarily. As something that we do more, more often than not because we enjoy it. It gives us the capacity to understand worship as a fulfillment of God's command to set aside time for him on a weekly basis. It gives us the capacity to understand that the world is comprised of more than what we see. What we're doing here this morning, gathering here at the beginning of the week, setting aside time for the creator of the universe, is an acknowledgement that the world is comprised of more than what we see. That there is a God in heaven, there is a creator who spoke the world into existence that still sustains us through the, through the word of his power. My claim to you and the claim of scripture is that the law of God written within each child of God's heart is the way that we understand those things. It's the way that we understand those things. And praise God that that's the way that we understand God's grace. Because there was a time where each and every one of us wouldn't have been allowed to grow in our knowledge of, of God. We would have approached the tabernacle in Israel, and guess what? We would have been turned away because we would have all been considered Gentiles. When Paul talks about the Jews and the Gentiles throughout the New Testament, we would have all been qualified as Gentiles. And Paul says the time for that division, the time for knowledge of God that was only dealt to the children of Israel, that time has passed. That time has been set beside us. And he's, the prophecy of Jeremiah teaches us that God says, I'm going to teach people about me myself. 
I'm going to teach people who I am myself. And I assure you this morning, there are people who have been taught the law of God who could not tell you and could not explicitly state the name of their Savior. They haven't been reached by a minister. They haven't been reached by a program. They've never been to the United States. They've never been to a part of the world where the name of Jesus is commonplace. And God is still able to teach them his law. Let's read from Romans chapter 3. To continue to think about this truth. Or rather, let's begin in verse, verse 2 and, and cha- um, Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, where we read, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, that's us this morning. That's by the division of Scripture, we're Gentiles that don't have the law. There are also many other people, many other non Jews scattered across the world that don't have the law. It says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature, The things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. Paul's saying there are people, Roman church, there are people across the globe today that don't have the law, that by nature do the things contained in the law. And I assure you today, when Paul says nature, he's not talking about our natural nature. Paul's very clear about our natural nature In Romans chapter 3 and verse 12, where he says, They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. But he says, when your nature has been transformed by God, you have the capacity to do the things contained in the law, even when you don't have an explicit knowledge of the law. This absolutely blew the Hebrew church's mind. Completely threw them for a loop. The way that it's explained to us in in Acts is there are people that claim that Paul was turning the world upside down. Because he came teaching that, oh, in this age, in the age of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is going to teach people who he is. And he's going to come proclaiming the kingdom of God. And there are going to be men raised up that travel across the world preaching the gospel. And because of the law that God has placed within people's hearts, because of the faith that he's given them, they are going to be able to believe in the message that's preached and rejoice in the message of God's grace. And the Hebrew church said, this is turning the world upside down. Because now we're not the only people that have access to a knowledge of God. We don't turn people away at at the tabernacle anymore. You know, and there are people like the Ethiopian eunuch that Paul ministers to, that Philip ministers to, that are reading the book of Isaiah and recognizing something deep and lasting about the message it contains and couldn't even tell Philip who Jesus Christ was. That is the age that Jesus Christ came heralding. And back to Romans chapter 2, we're told that these people that didn't have the law, they showed the work of the law written in their hearts. There it is again. 
They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Paul says with the law of God written within these people's hearts, they are experiencing conviction when they break the law of God, and they're experiencing the affirmation of God's spirit when they obey his commands. And he says that's in a group of people, a group of Gentiles that haven't received the law. What the implication is that this has for us today, wow, they're just, they're huge. They're huge. Because these verses tell us, again, that there are people scattered across the globe that have the law of God written in their hearts, who have a spiritual conscience who have the ability to discern between right and wrong that simply haven't ever heard the name of Jesus Christ. There are people that have the law written in their heart that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. I assure you today, we are going to rejoice in heaven with those people. We are going to rejoice in heaven with those people. And guess what? That time, when we all celebrate in heaven together, no one's going to be standing around questioning who their Savior is. Because when those people who have never received the knowledge of Jesus Christ depart into heaven and they encounter the presence of their Savior, they are going to know who he is. That's what it means, at least in part, when we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we shall know even as also we are known. Jesus Christ knows those that he loves. He knows those that he died for. He knows those who he has written his law within. But guess what? Sometimes they don't know him. Sometimes they couldn't articulate to you who he is. Praise God, that doesn't stop the salvation of Jesus Christ. That doesn't stop the effectual work of Christ offering himself up once, forever, and cleansing sin. We're going to celebrate with those Gentiles who did by nature the things contained in the law. We're going to celebrate with them in heaven one day. And they're not going to be questioning who died for their sins. Who sacrificed himself for their atonement. They're going to know. I'm thankful for that. You know, regardless of how the Hebrew church responded in anger and irritation and fear and just confusion to these truths, Jesus Christ says, I'm, dis I'm dispensing my law. I'm dispensing my word. I'm dispensing my truths as I will, as I've done throughout all of human history. He says, all are going to know who I am from the least to the greatest. And so this, this pattern here, this massive paradigm shift, this change, this means something for us. This means something very, very specific for us. Because Paul says, if the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats have been made naught by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this ought to change the way that you worship. And this is where the Hebrew church really had a problem. Because Paul comes into their presence and he says, Hebrew church, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law. The temple is going to be destroyed really about 40 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's not even going to be a possibility anymore. As a consequence, you're to embrace the kingdom of God as I'm teaching it. 
And he says in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You know, there was a time under the Levitical law when people would have only approached the presence of God stricken by fear. I want to read something from Leviticus 16 one more time in case we missed it. I don't think any of us did because it sticks out strongly in this passage. He says in verse 2, Speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark. Why? That he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. There's a time in which human beings approach the presence of God with fear. And Paul says to the Hebrew church, here's what's changed. I don't want you to approach the presence of God with fear anymore. He says, I want you to approach with boldness. I want you to approach with boldness. By a new and living way. Here's the change. We are participating in something that's part of a new and living way. Which Christ hath consecrated for us, that is to, that through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over God. He says, child of God, the way that you were prepared to approach into the presence of God himself, the way that you were consecrated, the way that you were prepared to do so, is not by the sacrifice of bulls and goats. You know, before Abraham prepared to go into the presence of God, there was a long series of steps that he had to, to acknowledge, participate in, and complete before he could go into the holiest of holies. He had to wash his body from head to toe. He had to be sure that he was perfectly clean. He had to be sure that he had not eaten or partaken of the wrong things within a certain period of time leading up to the Day of Atonement, he had to wear a certain kind of garment. Can you imagine if we had a dress code in the house of God? If I was standing back at the door checking everybody's dress code before they came into church? First of all, that would make me really uncomfortable. But second of all, that's what Aaron was having to do before he went into the, the, the Day of Atonement, before the Holiest of Holies. He's checking his boxes. He's double confirming. He's asking his family, family, have I followed all of the steps necessary to enter into the presence of Jesus Christ? Have I washed myself? Have I shaved properly? Have I made the right sacrifices to atone for my sins? Is there something unclean about me that would cause the Lord to be displeased with me as I go into his presence? We're not having to do any of these things this morning. You know, all of you look fantastic. I'm so happy that you choose to clean up and come to church and bathe and take care of all these basic things that we ought to do. But, Jesus, but Paul says the primary way that you're prepared to come before the presence of God is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all that's necessary. You don't have to scrub yourself clean and wear a massive jewel-studded hat like Aaron did. You don't have to put on your robes and check all the boxes of God's law. Paul says, you come before Jesus Christ consecrated 
by the blood of your Savior. That's how we're able to sit here this morning. That's how we are able to come into the very presence of the Spirit of God and worship is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, as a consequence of this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We are drawing near this morning. We are coming into the very presence of God, consecrated by Jesus Christ's blood, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Paul's using some Old Testament language. He's saying, come into the house of God prepared for an encounter with your Savior. Banish evil thoughts from your mind. Cleanse the thoughts of sin that you've committed over the past week. And be sure that you're prepared to have an encounter with your Savior. It's a word picture. You know, maybe we could wash our bodies with pure water. Sure, I hope we all do that again. But how, can, how could we literally sprinkle ourselves from an evil conscience? Paul's saying, I want you to prepare to have an encounter with God. Prepare to come into the presence of God, consecrated by Jesus Christ's blood with a little bit of forethought. I want you to come in his presence with this evil conscience that often afflicts you banished from your mind prepared to encounter with him. He said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. He says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, in the times of the temple, no one would dare forsake the Day of Atonement. No one would dare forsake the Day of Atonement. Because God clearly tells them, he says, hey, if you do not assemble before me on the Day of Atonement, there are direct and immediate consequences. There was no one that didn't prepare for this day in the land of Israel. You know, on these days when they would all assemble together after a certain sequence of years, everyone goes up to the temple. Everyone goes up to the Day of Atonement. Everyone prepares for this miraculous time once a year when Aaron goes before God. Why? Because Aaron went before God for himself and for the sins of all of Israel. No one would forsake that day. Paul says, when you assemble before God, consecrated by the blood of Jesus Christ, don't miss a chance to gather in his presence. Don't miss a chance to be there. Don't miss the Day of Atonement. Don't miss this time where we in this New Testament age enter figuratively into the holiest of all where the very presence of God is. And that's my concluding prayer for us this morning as we begin to draw to a close is that we would realize what it means not just to be eternally saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but also what it means together in his presence. The opportunity that we have this morning, the opportunity that we'll have throughout the week to go to the Lord in prayer, the opportunity that we have to directly and instantaneously seek God's presence, that is a privilege bought for us by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
We're not putting on our linen headgear anymore, praise God. We're not putting on our linen robes anymore, praise God. We're not offering up bullocks and goats before God to atone before sin. The blood of Jesus Christ equips us to come before God's presence. And I hope and pray that we'd never negate the importance of that. We would always come ready. We would always come prepared. We would always come rejoicing another time, another opportunity to gather in God's presence. Let's sing a hymn as we close.